Welcome to the Trilogy of Terror podcast. Hello and welcome to the Trilogy of Terror podcast. So, how have you been? What have you been up to? I know you probably think I've just been a lazy cow, but I've actually been really busy. No, honestly, I have. I've made guest appearances on Ancient Slumber and Cinema PsyOps podcasts, which was great for me because I'm a big fan of both shows. In fact, they were so much fun to do, I got overexcited and splashed out on a new microphone. Well, my equipment was a bit inadequate and old, so it was a good excuse for an upgrade. I also met up with the wonderful Amanda Reyes during her recent visit to the UK. She produces a podcast called Made for TV Mayhem and recently had a book published that she edited and wrote for called Are You in the House Alone? Growing Up with Gargoyles, Giant Turtles, Valerie Harper, The Cold War, Stephen King and co-ed Call Girls. And I tell you, what Amanda doesn't know about TV movies is just not worth worrying about. I've got a copy and I love it. I urge you to go out and order one for yourself. And I spent some time with the amazing Justin Kurzweil and Eric Threlfall from the Hysteria Continues podcast. So I've basically been rubbing shoulders with the horror podcast Glitterati. As for the trilogy of terror, well, here's a bit of news. I've been setting up a new Facebook group. You can search for it in Facebook under the name Trilogy of Terror Podcast Official. And I'd love you to join me and other listeners of the show for a bit of lighthearted chat about films and podcasting and whatever takes our fancy. But more on the group thing later. This episode, I'm going to be talking about director Steve Miner. He started off working as an editor or assistant editor with directors like Sean S. Cunningham and Wes Craven on several films, including the infamous Last House on the Left. After Halloween had become a success in 1978, Miner and Cunningham came up with their own independent slasher film called Friday the 13th. Cunningham was director and Miner was associate producer and unit production manager. It was a big success and when the sequel and second sequel went into production, Steve Miner took over the directing role for both of them. People don't always realise he's worked a lot in TV as well, directing episodes of The Wonder Years, Chicago Hope, Diagnosis Murder, Dawson's Creek, Smallville, Psych and others. And his films range from dramas like Forever Young to comedies like Soul Man and My Father the Hero, but he's still probably best known for his contribution to the horror genre, with classics like Friday the 13th, Parts 2 and 3, House, Warlock, Halloween H2O, Lake Placid and Day of the Dead remake... Uh, okay, not so much Day of the Dead remake, but a lot of other classics. I'm going to be giving a flavour of his work by looking at three of those movies, Friday the 13th Part 3, House and Lake Placid. I'll also be reading out what some of you think of those, and after that I'll discuss one extra movie that's completely unrelated to any of this. Call it a free add-on or bolt-on or strap-on, whatever you like. And finally, I'll be announcing what's coming in the next episode. So, as I often say, brace yourself, there's going to be a lot to take in. The Trilogy of Terror Podcast Weekends are a good time to escape to the woods. Unless the weekend begins with Friday the 13th. Because 13 is an unlucky number. But out here, so are 1 through 12. Because these are Jason's woods. And nobody leaves them alive. Friday the 13th, part 3. Jason, you can't fight him. You can't stop him. And now, you can't even keep him on the screen. Friday, the 13th, part three. When it comes to killing in Jason's woods, Jason will come to you. Friday, the 13th, part three. A new dimension in terror. It will scare you. Count on it.
Friday the 13th 3D, better known to a VHS or DVD generation as Friday the 13th Part 3, was not Steve Miner's first connection to the series. As I've already mentioned, he also directed Part 2 and was involved in the original film as well. Back in the early 80s, 3D was having a bit of a comeback in cinemas. In 1981, a 3D film came out called Coming At Ya. Uh, no, it's not that kind of film. It was actually a western. It was a success, and the year later we got another, Parasite, starring a very young Demi Moore. A slimy, big-toothed parasite would jump out towards the audience's cardboard glasses while Demi and others tried to avoid getting bitten by it. Over a four-year period, other 3D films came out as well, including some classic reissues and third instalments of Friday the 13th, Jaws and Amityville. The thing is with 3D filming, if you pull it off well, you get something exciting shooting towards your face. I know, it's a lesson that applies in other places too. Some of these horror movies took advantage of that and put it to fun use. Friday the 13th and Parasite both have scary things thrusting out into the audience. Others were less adventurous or had technical problems in filming and weren't so successful. To be fair, all of them added a lot of sequences that were just there to show off the effect. Friday 3 is just as guilty, with popcorn jumping in a pan, yo-yos dropping to the camera and juggling. Though, to be honest, it's not the most exciting way I've seen a set of balls handled in a 3D movie. Horror wasn't the only genre to embrace it, you know. During filming, the special polarised photography reduces brightness, and in Friday 3, I assume that's why we see such strong colours, particularly with the costumes. There's Vera in the bright red top, chilly and vivid blue, and so on. The film overall has a slightly unnatural colour saturation to it, and I find that sort of appealing. The gory special effects, to be honest, are not the best in the series, though to be fair it wasn't really meant to be watched in flat 2D. The shock of things suddenly leaping out the cinema screen right at you would probably distract you from visible wires or fake looking body parts. So as we watch it on our DVDs and Blu-rays on our HD flat screen TVs, the flaws are a lot harder to miss. But having said that, this isn't a horror film that's intended to be taken too seriously. The disco version of the theme music is a bit of a clue. So, you know from the outset, you're in for a fun, slightly campy thrill ride that might make you spit out your popcorn. And that's really what I like. I mean, let's face it, it's a pure 80s slasher film with a 3D gimmick. It's not a serious drama. It's actually quite self-aware. It makes little references to its predecessors. Like Debbie reading a copy of Fangoria featuring Tom Savini, who did the makeup effects in part one. And her death scene, a sharp object pushed up through her body from under the bed, is a direct reference to the killing of Kevin Bacon's character, also in part one. And there's the repeat of the jump scare with the final girl in a canoe, except this time Jason and his mother are switched around, reflecting the change in direction of the sequels. It has a good stab at building tension, forgive the pun. For example, the shop sequences in the first act, where we catch unsettling glances of Jason's shadow in the background, or brief was-that-him glimpses between the washing on the clothesline. The final girl chase is really tense. I think that's the best part of the film. And the pacing moves along more evenly than in part two, where the killings don't start properly until about 50 minutes in. This version of Jason is genuinely scary, um, one of my favourites. Not just because he's the first one to put on the famous hockey mask, he's a tall guy and frighteningly athletic. There's a bit more humour in here than in part two, something that seems to increase each time Steve Miner makes a horror movie, as we'll see. Shelly, what are you doing in there? Why aren't you down at the lake with everybody else? Oh, they said they were going skinny dipping and uh, I'm not skinny enough. There are plenty of jump scares and gore and humour and good-looking people. It knows what its audience wants and it gives it to them, apart from boobs. But come on, the series more than makes up for that in parts four and five. 
The writers even try to give the characters a bit of depth, with differing degrees of success. Like when Chris and her boyfriend have a romantic picnic in the dark next to a sewer outlet, and she tells him about her traumatic encounter with Jason in the past. And I like the attempt to make Shelley a bit more sympathetic rather than just an annoying joker. That'll teach you a valuable lesson. A beautiful girl like you should never go out in the dark alone. <laughs> Damn it, Shelley! Why do you do these stupid things? I have to. No, you don't have to. I just want you to like me. I do like you. But not when you act like a jerk. Being a jerk is better than being a nothing. I never said you were nothing. You don't have to say it. I could tell. So they try to explore his insecurities and why he is like he is. A bit. Still bloody annoying, though. Jerk! A part of that might be because of the actor's performance, but I think it's just his lack of experience showing. Most of the cast are fairly good. I've heard people criticise Chris as a final girl, but to be honest, I think the actress does a decent job of what she's given. She's certainly not the worst actor in this, and I think the writers came up with an interesting and slightly brave ending for her. Looking at the series as a whole, I wonder if this is the most Friday the 13th of the instalments. The definitive one? Is that a bit controversial to say? Jason's the killer and wears the hockey mask. It's set near Camp Crystal Lake. It features characters like the Prophet of Doom, the Annoying Joker, the Final Girl and the Shagging Couple. Sex, sex, sex. You guys are getting boring. And it follows a set three-act template where we have the initial shot killing and introductions, Jason stalks and murders people and then a cat and mouse chase with the Final Girl. The first two films don't have all those ingredients in place yet, and the ones after this start moving away from the formula. Not having a single final girl or introducing far-fetched elements like fake Jason, zombie Jason, Carrie versus Jason or Jason in space. I have a confession to make. This is my favourite Friday in the series. I'm not saying it's the best, that's a different thing completely. It's the first one I saw, so there's nostalgia, of course, but I do think it does what it does well, and it's loads of fun. It loses a bit of credibility with some horror fans because of all the silly 3D gags, but I find that quite charming, and it marks it clearly as from a specific period of modern cinema history. That short-lived, exciting burst of 3D, which those of us who grew up in the 80s will probably remember with fondness. I turned around. And standing there was this hideous-looking man. He was so grotesque, he was almost inhuman. He had a knife. And he attacked me with it. I was so hysterical, I don't know how I was even able to think, but I kicked the knife out of his hands and I ran. But he ran after me and he caught me and he pulled me down to the ground. I was kicking and screaming and yelling, but it didn't do any good. He dragged me along the ground. I blacked out. I don't know what happened after that. I just don't know. This is a house where no one should live. Woman lived here before you was nuts. Wouldn't be surprised if someone just got fed up in Austria. She was my aunt. Heart of gold, though. Roger Cobb has come here alone. Daddy? <laughs> but no one is ever alone in the house. This house knows everything about you. Leave while you can. No! It has been waiting for him. Hi. Sandy.
your own risk. Roger Cobb is a hugely successful horror fiction author, but for his next book, he's decided to write something quite different, something neither his agent nor his fans are particularly excited about. Mr. Cobb, we've been waiting a long time. Uh, can you tell me what your next book is going to be about? Um, it's about my personal experiences in Vietnam. Uh, the war? Yeah, that's right. Oh, uh, great. When his eccentric Aunt Elizabeth dies suddenly, he inherits and moves into her big Queen Anne-style villa. Through various flashbacks and conversations, we discover that his young son is missing. In an early scene, Roger dreams about the boy sitting by a grave in the jungle. A hand suddenly bursts out from the ground, presumably as a nod to the film Carrie, which the main actor William Catt had also appeared in. We also find that Roger's divorce from his wife, who's the star of a daytime soap opera, that, I've got to be honest, sounds like something I definitely want to watch. My sister is an only child and you abused her. I can never forgive you for that. I can't hide the fact that I've been a male prostitute my entire life. Your sister paid me $2,000 to spend the night with her. Don't you think it's time you woke up and smelled coffee? I'll smell whatever I damn well please, without your help. My sister was an only child. I still think that's the best line in the movie. But as you would expect, this old house is one wooden erection that's going to be hard to get to grips with. And the one thing Roger thought he'd find easily in there isn't going to happen. Solitude. Solitude. Of course, solitude. Before long, he's dealing with the big clawed grenade-wearing monster in the closet, mounted fish coming to life, levitating homicidal garden tools, and a demonic version of his ex-wife. Well, his aunt's ghost did try to warn him. And Elizabeth. It won, Roger. It tricked me. I didn't think it could, but it did. What? It's going to trick you too, Roger. This house knows everything about you. Leave while you can! No! And, by the way, that last bit of dialogue was sampled in the Dead or Alive song, Something in My House. I know, you probably never heard of it, and yes, I did go out and buy it. Well, those were the days when 12 inches of vinyl would have kept me happy in my bedroom for hours. Each time Roger tries to sit down and write his book, we get new flashback sequences in the Vietnam jungle. This builds up until his friendship with another soldier, known as Big Ben, is put to the ultimate test. Okay, maybe that clip does sound a bit like something else is going on, but in any case, Roger fails him, and that guilt has been what's been driving Roger to write his book, and is evidently what the evil house has picked up on and started to exploit. So, the old building, Aunt Elizabeth, the monsters, Vietnam, the missing child, Roger's guilt and feelings of failure, these all sound like very disconnected things, but as the story unfolds, we start to see how they come together. Aside from the actual Haunted House story itself, which was written by Fred Decker, who wrote Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps, there are also some really fun set pieces, like Roger persuading his neighbour to help capture the wardrobe monster. The other highlight for me is the grotesque demon version of Roger's wife, and the scenes around her, including her switching back and forth between human and monster, and the act of bodily dismemberment and burial, which all have echoes of Evil Dead and which lead on to a prime example of the great choices of songs chosen for the soundtrack. While I'm far away from you, my baby, I know it's hard for you, my baby, because it's hard for me, my baby, and the darkest hour is just before. Aunt Elizabeth was apparently a bit of an artist, and her Salvador Dali-like paintings provide a few extra clues, which lead to Roger having a breakthrough. Quite literally, he smashes the glass in the bathroom cabinet and finds a weird kind of dark, scary Narnia at the back of it. In there is my favourite monster of the film, the Ray Harryhausen-inspired winged skeleton thing. 
I mean, I find flying flappy things scary enough as it is. I've been unsettled by bats in the past and startled by parrots, and I've even been known to jump at the odd cockatoo. But I digress, and Roger finds himself in the world of his flashbacks, or as I try not to think of it, a studio with some big plants and a tape of jungle noises. Towards the end of the film, you can see a possible influence from Steve Miner's slasher movie past, a hint of the final girl chase where a deformed killer is chasing a main character around the house at the climax of the film. In this case, a zombified version of Big Ben, who's come back looking like a cross between G.I. Joe and Skeletor, heavily armed with deadly one-liners. Big Ben. No, it's your fairy godmother. Oh, and speaking of connections to Friday the 13th series, there are a few, actually. The opening music was written by Harry Manfredini, who created the original Friday theme, and it does have a similar feel to it. The actor playing the cop in one of Roger's flashbacks also played a cop in Friday the 13th, and the stunt coordinator was Kane Hodder, who would go on to play Jason Voorhees four times in that series. The movie is more overtly comedy than Friday the 13th Parts 2 and 3. It even features a very recognisable sitcom actor in a main role, George Went, who's best known for playing Norm in Cheers. While House doesn't have as much tension or sense of dread as the Friday movies, it does still surprise you and make you jump. But the violence here is cartoon-like, and the scares are all about having fun. In one fight scene, for example, the attacker's arm is pulled off and the victim starts hitting back with it, quite literally. The dark, gross-out humour and the monsters give the film a similar feel to Evil Dead 2, though it has a lot less gore. Hardly any, in fact. And in keeping with the other horror movies of the time, attractive bare breasts are on display quite often, though in this case they belong to Roger, which I don't have a problem with. A sequel called House 2 The Second Story was released two years after this, made in a similar style but following a new family in a completely different home. House 3 came out in 1989 and was known as the horror story in the States. To be honest, it doesn't have any connection to the previous instalments, tonally or in terms of story. It's basically a straight-faced serial killer flick, where the antagonist is killed in the electric chair, then comes back for vengeance through the electricity supply. Coincidentally, it was released the same year as Shocker, a film where a serial killer is killed in the electric chair and comes back for vengeance through the electricity supply. I admit I haven't seen House 4, but apparently Roger Cobb returns, played by the same actor, but with a completely different wife and a daughter instead of a son and gets bumped off early in the story, and that's about all I know about it. From the three House movies I have seen, I'd still say the original is best. It's fast-paced, it still stands up well after all these years, and it's just entertaining. I think it works well as a comedy, but it's dark enough to just keep it inside the horror genre too a definite favourite from my younger days that got watched a lot. Feeling better Now that we're through Feeling better Cos I'm over you I've learned my lesson It left a scar And now I see how you Yes, it's time for an intermission, so go grab yourself some salty nuts while I play some promos for other podcasts I recommend you check out if you haven't already. Aren't TV movies fun? You see all these familiar faces, but doing really unfamiliar things. And I think that that's really exciting. And I think that's something important to the history of film in general. Join Amanda. There's a lot going on in that scene that is unspoken between two men. So I'm just telling you, I think there was a little Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> Dad. I think Therese is a little bipolar. Her voice, it goes from this sort of sexy, sensuous voice to, Okay, Ramsey, get out of here. <laughs> 
and date. I love, you know, in like the late 70s, early 80s, the crazier a person got, the bigger their hair got. <laughs> As they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies. Mr. Hazelrick. On the made-for-TV mayhem show. This man came to see him. He never comes to see him at work. <laughs> what kind of stories could he have to tell him? <laughs> Tales of his postal delivery. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick. Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark. If you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, ah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, crudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17 year olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at twelve years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did be you watch movie. this shit at twelve? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. And now for our third film by Steve Miner, Lake Placid. It has existed since prehistoric times. It was worshipped by primitive cultures. It can kill a man with one crushing bite. We heard a man was bit in half. Any recent bear attacks? Bears don't attack people underwater. Probably a fever then. What's that? Whatever's out there, he's shot with this, he's dead. Oh, no. <laughs> Sheriff, how many deputies you got? You came here to help you find it. We can't let him kill it. Experience a few parts mystery. Do you have any theories why he's here? Honestly, I don't know. And a few parts... <laughs> missing. It's a human toe. Is this the man who was killed? He seemed taller. Oh, my God. <laughs> How much of a wacko is this guy? Bridget Fonda. Mother! Oliver Platt. Maybe swim back up! Maybe not. I just have this feeling everything's totally safe. This summer, the Earth's oldest creature has just found a new home. Lake Placid. This movie opens with a man in shiny black gear, busy tagging beavers. Uh, don't worry, it's not as filthy as it sounds. He's a game warden, and while he's working underwater in a lake, he's suddenly attacked by an unseen creature and bitten in half. It's a suspenseful and gory opening sequence and a good taste over what's to come. When they find an unusual tooth in the victim's remains, 
other characters start to get involved, including the sheriff, a handsome game warden, a paleontologist from New York, and a helicopter-flying mythology and crocodile enthusiast, who apparently likes big boobs. Not all of these characters are happy to arrive there. Kelly, the paleontologist, has only just found out her lover, who also happens to be her boss, has been up to no good behind her back with a work colleague who's also a friend. Hey. Hey, Kevin, what's going on? What's happening? How's it going? How's your family? Good? It's great. So nice to see you. Fuck off. This is business. There was an accident in Maine. Some guy got killed by something in a lake, probably a bear, but they found a tooth. A tooth? A fragment of a tooth. One they say couldn't have come from any bear. Evidently, it looks prehistoric, like maybe a dinosaur. Oh, well, then I'm sure that that's what it was. He was killed by a dinosaur. Is there anything else? I uh, want you to go there. What? It's probably nothing, but you're a paleontologist. This is what we do. What do you mean, this is what we do? I'd like you to check out this tooth. I'm not a field person. Well, on this one, I would like you to be. You want me to go to Maine to look at a tooth? Oh, this was Myra's idea, wasn't it? Oh. Oh, of course. Get me out of the office for a few days. Wait till I cool off. It has nothing to do with that. I don't do field work. And even if I did, Maine? I'm allergic to timber. Kelly? I'm not going to Maine. I'm not going to Maine. It's ridiculous. Kelly plays the classic fish-out-of-water role, or should that be amphibium out of water, and is also our way into the story. She's the outsider who comes into the situation who has to learn to adapt to a different kind of environment with unfamiliar people and unexpected new risks that can suddenly pop up out of nowhere. No! Kelly, I... No! No, I keep getting hit with heads! Try to calm down, all right? You calm down! Just calm down, OK? Just try to keep breathing. I know! I am being very calm. I am composed. It's the second time I've been hit with a severed head and it upsets me! Adding to the quirky cast, there's a surprisingly foul-mouthed golden girl who lives alone by the lake, who bakes cookies and feeds live cows to a giant crocodile. And I have to say, the actress Betty White steals every scene she's in, in the best possible way. Her character is not too pleased about how the investigation is going. If I had a dick, this is where I'd tell you to suck it. In fact, the script overall is sharp and witty, and gives us really likeable characters and funny dialogue. It's written by David E. Kelly, known for a long list of TV shows including Ally McBeal, Boston Legal, Picket Fences and Chicago Hope. And as well as the fabulously sweary Mrs. Bickerman, other highlights are Kelly's whiny outbursts and the snarky to and fro between the sheriff and the crocodile expert as they're forced to work together. I brought a pork chop for luck. Maybe you could hang it around your neck. That's sweet. Maybe later you could chew the bark off my big fat log. The cinematography looks a lot better than you might expect in a horror comedy. The photography is so beautiful at times I even managed to forgive a solitary but obvious day for night scene. Uh, normally a pet hate of mine. Uh, honestly, this film looks amazing, and I haven't even mentioned the score yet, which is gorgeous. It's composed by John Ottman, who'd previously done the score for Steve Miner's Halloween H2O, as well as a load of other big-budget movies. It's not until exactly halfway through the film that we finally get to see the main beast itself. Much like the shark in Jaws, a lot of the tension and fear is created out of what you don't see. The gore effects are really well done, and there's plenty of very tense moments, and even the CGI is convincing. I thought the actors all did an excellent job in their roles. I liked all the characters, nobody was annoying, and I was interested in them, which isn't something I can say for many films. Some of them develop by going through their own journeys within the story. For example, Kelly's character, as the irritable, intolerant, uptight academic. She learns to adapt and accept people and finds inner strength. And despite being probably the only person not to notice how impressive Bill Pullman looks in tight, wet, body-hugging neoprene, she finally starts to see her situation as an adventure that does have its appeal after all. Laws of nature could be changing, Jack. That thing out there, that's... You're having the best time of your life, aren't you? What? Now what? People have been killed. I hardly think I'm having a good time. Why, why would you... Does it show? This is the first time I've ever actually, you know, been in the middle of anything. Is that why you're here to 
Get in the middle of something? Maybe. I've always read about what's happened. I've, I've never... We should go to bed. I mean, we should go to, uh, rest. We should go to our separate tents and, and here, oh, get yeah. some, go. The climactic scenes are certainly a nod to Jaws. There's a final jump scare in the Carrie and Friday the 13th mould and a traditional setup for a potential sequel. In fact, Lake Placid was followed by three of them, plus a crossover film with the Anaconda series, which were all made for TV or DVD on lower budgets with less success than this one. As I've implied before, Jaws, the original summer blockbuster, has a lot to answer for. Its massive popularity and profit have led to no end of filmmakers trying to cash in over the years, from the less effective and often cheesy attempts like Tentacles, Devilfish, Cruel Jaws and a load of recent made-for-TV sci-fi stuff, up to the successful and critically acclaimed imitators like... Um... Uh, well, Lake Placid, as far as I'm concerned, is successful in what it sets out to do. It's an homage to Jaws in much the same way that Joe Dante's Piranha is. It's not trying to compete with a cinematic giant, but it references it in a knowing and affectionate way. The suspense and the gore is all recreated here, and there's that added layer of dark humour that complements it so well. It's a human toe. Some decomposition, a little acidic. Definitely been swallowed. Is this the man who was killed? He seemed taller. I'm not going to spoil the ending because this is a film I really think you should watch if you haven't already. It's not over long, in fact it's only an hour and 20 minutes. I found it tense, scary and funny and I don't think I've been so excited by the sight of a monster in the water since that Bond film with the white swimming trunks. But I do have to admit, when the final credits rolled, it did leave me with one question. What did happen to that cow? The Trilogy of Terror Podcast. Well, those were the three films that I picked. So were they the ones you would have chosen? Did you agree with what I thought of them? Do you have any horror directors in mind that you'd really like me to cover in a future episode? I'd love to hear from you. You can leave me written or audio feedback or any comments by emailing me at trilogypodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at IamGoreBlimey, or one word, no punctuation, or via the Facebook page or the new Facebook group. And here's some feedback I received since last time. Hey Gore, Joe Parker here. I just wanted to go ahead and uh, send you a quick sound bite or sound clip, MP3, whatever the hell you want to call this thing, and uh, just uh, let you know that you're doing an awesome job on this show, man. I'm listening to every episode repeatedly. Uh, I know I just finished the zombie trilogy episode last night for the second time, and uh, damn, you're getting me to where I want to watch those things again. And they're not good movies, but though you have fun with it, it's it's endearing, man. So yeah, great job on the show. Keep it up i can't wait till the next episode and uh, other than that hey joe parker a hybrid moments podcast signing off have a good one man thank you so much joe you really made my day when i got that joe produces the hybrid moments podcast which has some really interesting content and if you're not subscribed to it already you are missing a treat so go on sort yourself out I've had some written feedback too. Here's an email from the lovely Amanda Reyes who says, Hi there, Mr. Trilogy. I think Steve Miner is such an interesting guy to discuss on a podcast, as I don't think he gets a lot of credit as a horror movie director. Certainly Friday the 13th fans know him as the guy who made parts 2 and 3, but he also brought Michael Myers back from oblivion in the underrated Halloween H2O, not to mention the two other films you're covering. To be perfectly honest, I haven't seen Lake Placid or House in some time, so I thought I'd concentrate on Friday the 13th, if that's okay. I mean, I guess it has to be. Friday the 13th Part 2 is my favourite in the series. Baghead Jason is terrifying, and I love how number twos in franchises tend to up the ante with a bit more action, violence and gore. I also think Minor maintained what I find so effective about the first film, which is the ambience. While everyone is always chattering about Savini's special effects, which are amazing, don't get me wrong, I think the film really works because of the surreal and almost dreamlike quality of the woods and the imposing but unknown danger. 
The second film is a lot less dreamy, but it has a feel to it that haunts every frame. It still scares me a bit to this day. I do think the third instalment is a step down, but whereas the first two films dove into thick atmosphere, the third film changes the pacing with more humour, whether intentional or not, and some really fun 3D effects. I've seen this film in 3D twice, the second time being at a screening with several of the cast members in attendance. I sat in front of the guy who played Rick and he made a joke about his eyes landing in my lap. I giggled and I'm still giggling. Friday the 13th Part 3 is a strange beast because it's a classic and not a classic at the same time. It's definitely up there as one of the better entries, but is it necessarily a good movie in terms of being scary? Not so much, but there are some really nice moments, such as when Chris is hiding in the closet and looks through the keyhole only to see Jason running towards her. That always freaks me out. I also love some of the dialogue, like Shelley's infamous excuse for not skinny dipping because he's not skinny enough, and Chili's hilarious, be a man man which i say all the time also we don't take no food stamps is amazing when i met the actress who plays vera at a convention i did a dramatic reenactment of that quote and she signed my picture with it also fox swinging on a rope exclaiming this feels good is one of my favorite moments in a friday film it's good times for all Wow, I thought I had nothing to say and now I feel like I could go on forever, so I'll just stop here and say I'm looking forward to your thoughts. Thanks Amanda. Trust you to start talking about number twos in the franchise, though thankfully none were chucked at the audience as part of the 3D. I'm incredibly jealous that you've not only seen the film in a proper 3D screening, but you also saw it with some of the cast there. Next up, another email, this time from Andy Roberts. Hello there Mr Gore Blimey, it's Andy Roberts with feedback for Lake Placid and Friday the 13th Part 3. Unfortunately I didn't get a chance to watch House but I'm sure you'll wipe the floor with it anyway. We'll start with Friday Part 3, which Steve Miner did in addition to Friday Part 2. It's about as formulaic as it gets, with your usual ragtag group of teens who head to Crystal Lake to relax in a large log cabin. Unfortunately, Jason is unscathed after being defeated by Ginny from the previous film, and he starts off proceedings via a knitting needle and meat cleaver. There's some great deaths in this instalment, like a pitchfork through the neck, a harpoon in the eye, and a guy being split in half with a machete. It's also done in a much snappier, lighter fashion than the previous movie, which had more setup and exposition. I remember this being the first movie I've watched that showed drug users in their bongs and stuff. I was only 11 at the time, and I remember being terrified when the girl gets a poker shoved through her. Years later, I watch this and really enjoy it without any fear of any kind. Shelley's character is the only standout to me. He actually engenders some sympathy with me and reminds me that everyone ultimately just wants to be accepted. He also gives Jason indirectly his iconic hockey mask that has since become a hallowed image in horror film culture. Unfortunately, the MPAA did a number on this movie, just like the previous film, so a lot of the gorier shots were cut out and have since not resurfaced. This was also the only Friday movie that was filmed in 3D, so the only thing that irks me about this film is the blatant exploitation of this tech, as all home video releases are in 2D only. Nevertheless, this is one of my favourite Friday the 13th films, and I am always in the mood to watch it. Now on to Lake Placid. I also remember this movie from my early teens, and it's also an evolution of the comedy horror genre that there were hints of in Friday Part 3, and I assume were more apparent in House. A giant CGI crocodile is feasting upon trespassers in a lake in Maine, and several celebrities, including Bridget Fonda, Bill Pullman, Betty White, Oliver Platt and Brendan Gleeson, team up to fight it. It's a bit of a hoot the whole way through, with way more humour than gruesomeness, but it can get grisly. One of the funniest things I've found is how hapless Fonda's character is. She is frequently launched or pulled from vehicles, has severed body parts thrown at her, and is generally seen to be complaining. There's lots of laugh-out-loud moments, especially Betty White's campy, cantankerous old lady who has the iconic line Thank you, Officer Fuckmeat. I never felt any real threat from the croc, even when I was younger, so as a horror picture it's a little paltry, but it is entertaining and the acting is much better than this sort of movie usually gets, so it's ultimately a thumbs up from me too. That's pretty much my feedback done. Really enjoyed the two I'd seen and can't wait for the next podcast to come out. Double entendre. Andy. 
Oh, thanks, Sandy. And look at you there wiggling your double entendres at me. I'm a good boy, me. I wouldn't even know how to say a double entendre. And if I did, I'm sure I'd give you one. And last but by no means least, I've got some comments from a first-time feedbacker, Kristin. She says, Hello, Mr. Gorblimey. It's Kristin, a.k.a. Kiki Writes, on Twitter, just dropping in to say that I adore your podcast so much that I decided to curse it with some feedback on the Steve Miner movies you're covering. I haven't seen House in years, but I remember seeing it as a kid and it left quite an impression on me. I think it's the first time I ever saw comedy and horror mashed together like that. I remember it being a crazy weird movie with some wild effects. Big Ben was something else. It was really such a trippy movie that I was too amazed by it to worry about it giving me nightmares like I did a lot of the horror films I watched as a kid. Lake Placid is one of those movies where my mother will stop whatever she's doing, tell everyone not to talk to her and watch whenever it's on. This movie is an excellent example of something that could have gone horribly wrong, but instead ended up being oh so right. The balance of humour and scares plays out with such a great cast that it really elevates it to greatness. Honestly, I think Oliver Platt is brilliant in this movie, and I'm not just saying that because we share a birthday. I admit to loving Friday the 13th Part 3 more than it probably deserves. I've never seen it in 3D, but at least in 2D, the 3D effects don't look quite as awful as it does in Jaws 3D. Yes, the setups are obvious, the yo-yo, the juggling, but some of them would probably be quite fun in the theatre, like Jason's shooting the spear at Vera. The movie is a fairly standard slasher, but some of it does go back to the first movie, with Debbie getting killed like Kevin Bacon and Chris having her own little canoe scare at the end. I think it's a fun movie, even if it's not particularly great. Thank you, Kristen, and thanks to all you lovely guys for all your comments. I mentioned earlier that this podcast now has its own Facebook group called Trilogy of Terror Podcast Official, and please do come over and say hi. Recently, we were talking about films we love that nobody else seems to have heard of. My suggestion was the Irish psychological thriller Dorothy, which is also known as Dorothy Mills, which I think is criminally underrated. If you want to know why, well, you'll have to have a look in the group to find out what I said. Other people came up with interesting suggestions like Lunopolis, Skullduggery, The Outing, which is also called Scream, but not the Wes Craven one, A Phantom of the Mole, Eric's Revenge, The Bride of Frank, The Falls, quite a few that were new to me. But it was the suggestion of Amanda Reyes that caught my attention the most, and that's the one I tracked down to watch the other night. It's Attack of the Beast Creatures, which is a low-budget monster movie from 1985. What the hell are those things? I don't know. See how they came from every direction? Must be millions of them out here. And they're going to be back. I know they're going to be back. And when they do, we better be ready for them. Well, we can't stay here. You're right. This place is much too open. Our best bets are either head for a higher ground or get back down to the boat. Boat? What if we go out in the water? How can we survive? Sure, we don't stand a chance if we stay on this island. Everybody's going to have a say in that decision. Even more. This is the story of a group of shipwreck survivors who get stranded on a mysterious island. Not only do they have to survive the elements, they have to deal with infighting between the alpha males, pools of corrosive acid, and hundreds of little white-eyed red-faced dolls who live in the trees and like to bite people. Well, they're not supposed to be dolls, but it's hard to deny that's obviously what they are. And my goodness is a hoot to see people threshing around while clutching the little critters against them or drop-kicking the stiff little bodies into bushes. Yes, you can sometimes tell puppeteers are jiggling them around on sticks or simply tossing them at the actors, and they're not much more scary than your bog-standard tiny tears, but I have to admit there's something strangely endearing about them. The same goes for the film as a whole. It shouldn't really work. The budget feels non-existent and it looks like it's all filmed on a single video camera. While most of the acting isn't terrible, it does come across as enthusiastic amateur dramatics. Characters make stupid decisions, the men squabble and the women scream a lot. The pacing is uneven and quite a few scenes have people walking through the forest that go on far too long with nothing happening. And the background music, which is continual, does get a bit drony at times and you might wish you could have a break from it. But it's hard not to admire what they ended up with. It's like they've taken the Zuni fetish doll from the Karen Black film Trilogy of Terror, which I must say has a cool name, and increased the threat by multiplying the monster to hundreds. Hey, it worked for Aliens, so why not here? They found a great location to shoot it, they came up with a few neat ideas to take advantage of that, 
And who cannot be charmed by a film that gets hold of one of those medical school skeletons and uses it three completely different times? Anyone who loves bad movies would have a field day with this. There's loads of material that can make you laugh. But despite many shortcomings, it's also a film with a good heart that's been put together with enthusiasm by someone who is determined to get the most out of what limited resources they had. It tells a story. It's fun to watch. It entertained me. I can think of films with much bigger budgets that haven't managed that. If I were going to make a horror film, I'd want to make one like this. I mean, what more do you want? So thank you, Amanda, for the suggestion. I hadn't heard of this before, but I'm glad I gave it a try. I really enjoyed it, and it's definitely worth a watch. Anyway, if you want to join in discussing and suggesting films for me to have a look at, or just come down and chat about the podcast or horror films in general, then come and join us in the Facebook group. Just search within Facebook for Trilogy of Terror Podcast Official. But remember the word official at the end, as that's the right one, not the other group that comes up. And it would be great to meet you there. And that's all for this episode. A bit longer than usual, I know, but you did ask. Honestly, when it comes to podcast length, I've never known such a bunch of size queens. Uh, I'm only kidding. In fact, there's more Trilogy of Terror coming at you very soon. Next week, in fact. I'm going to be having a chat with Eric Threlfall from the Hysteria Continues podcast, and we'll be talking about the first four Friday the 13th films. The next director episode will be out after that, looking at three films by British sexploitation director Pete Walker. I'll be talking about The Flesh and Blood Show, House of Whipcord, and Frightmare, also known as Cover Up. If you have any comments about those films, that director, or any feedback in general, you can email it to me at trilogypodcast at gmail.com or get in touch on Twitter or on the Facebook page. And don't forget the new Facebook group, Trilogy of Terror Podcast Official, where you can come along and join in the discussion. Thanks for everyone who's been in touch. Thanks for Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for the music, The Show Must Be Go and Casa Bossa Nova. Thanks to StrangeAndDeadly.com for giving this podcast a home. And lastly, but most importantly, thank you. You there, you, for listening. So till next time, bye. Don't forget to visit and like the Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at IamGoreBlimey. Or email us at trilogypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>